Hey everyone, this is Ben Norton, and you are listening to Rules Based Disorder here on Colin. This podcast is also on Spotify and iTunes. So if you want to listen to it as a podcast and, you know, check out past episodes or subscribe or something, it's not only here on Colin. You can listen to it elsewhere, but here on Colin is the only place where you can call in, hence the name, and join these discussions because I try to, with all these episodes, I try to have a discussion. I'm gonna, as always, I will open this for a Q&A. So anyone who is listening on Colin right now can join and ask a question if you just want to join the queue. And today I, I do have a hard stop. I have to be done within an hour. So I'm going to keep this episode around 50, 55 minutes, and then I have a hard stop. But anyone who is listening now, please feel free to join the queue, and I will take your questions. Just while I'm waiting for the queue to fill up, I'm going to talk about a few things that are happening. This this week, today's June 11th, and this week has been really incredible in terms of geopolitics, a lot of interesting international developments. I, in my previous episode, which you can find, I hear it on Colin or on Spotify or iTunes, I talked about the so-called Summit of the Americas and discussed how it's been a complete diplomatic disaster for the U.S. Eight countries leaders, the presidents of eight countries in Latin America boycotted, including Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba, Bolivia, Mexico, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. And in the, inside the summit, we've seen a rebellion the summit ended yesterday, June 10th, and up to the final day, we saw speeches from leaders, including President Alberto Fernandez of Argentina, who openly criticized the exclusion of Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. We saw Mexico's foreign minister, Marcelo Ebrard, also criticize the exclusion, and they called for strengthening the CELAC, the Community of Latin American and Caribbean States as opposed to the U.S.-dominated Organization of American States, the OAS. In fact, in his speech, President Fernandez of Argentina even talked about the Bolivia coup and mentioned the role of the OAS in, in legitimizing and supporting that coup in Bolivia. We also saw leaders of Caribbean nations call for the end to the U.S. blockade on Cuba, criticizing the exclusion of Cuba. So it was pretty incredible to see Multiple leaders in Latin America and the Caribbean criticized Joe Biden and U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken right directly to their faces. This is a pretty historic development. And then, of course, there was this important people's summit that happened outside. And I want to mention the the noble participation of figures like Oscar Lopez Rivera, who is a Puerto Rican revolutionary. He was a political prisoner imprisoned by the U.S. government for decades. And he was, at that time, the longest the longest political prisoner in the United States. I believe now it might be, well, I'm not entirely sure who it is now, so I'm not going to, uh, I think it might be, uh, I don't know. Well, anyway, I'm not going to say something that could be wrong. So anyway, Oscar Lopez Rivera was the longest serving political prisoner and he participated in the People's Summit and showed that he his will was not broken, that he still very much is of revolutionary. And I would highly recommend he spoke in in English as well. So for people who don't speak Spanish, you should definitely check out his 
comments which were published by the Breakthrough News. And um, and now, uh, you know, Leonard Peltier is the, the next political prisoner, Mumia Abu-Jamal, who should be released immediately. But um, also we saw at the People's Summit, we saw comments, speeches that were given digitally uh, via via video. They, they weren't personally attending, obviously, from President Diaz-Canel of Cuba, President Maduro of Venezuela, and also former President Evo Morales of Bolivia. And you can find videos of their comments at Breakthrough News. I would highly recommend Breakthrough News coverage. They have covered this really well. So check out all their coverage of the People's Summit. And I should also mention that that President Maduro, the Venezuelan president, is currently in Iran. And this is another historic development this week. He visited Algeria and then he visited Iran and he gave a speech talking about the importance of building anti-imperialist solidarity and creating a multipolar world. And for people interested, I recently published an article at multipolarista.com talking about how Iran has become a member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And this is one of the most important organizations in the world, although in the West, it's not very well known that it even exists. And the Shanghai Cooperation Organization consists of the countries that represent 40% of the global population, including China, Russia, India, Pakistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and Tajikistan. And Iran became a member in 2021. And Iran proposed its foreign minister for economic affairs proposed creating a currency within Eurasia for trade to use within the members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. This is a massive development. And while we see Venezuela and Iran and also Iran and Nicaragua boosting their ties, numerous high-level officials from Iran visited Nicaragua in May, and they signed a series of important economic agreements in terms of agriculture and petroleum and other deals. So, I mean, this is this is part of this larger multipolar order that's being constructed. And finally, I think there's another thing that I wanted to talk about briefly before starting to respond to questions today. So again, anyone, anyone who wants to ask a question, please feel free to join. But after, well, at the people, uh, sorry, excuse me, at the U.S. government's summit in California, we saw that President Joe Biden met with the far right leader of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, and Jair Bolsonaro praised Biden and said the meeting went extremely well. And as Brian Meir, who's a great journalist at Telesur, who lives in Brazil, he's lived there for many decades, speaks Portuguese, he published a report talking about how Bolsonaro held a press conference gushing after the meeting with Biden. And Bolsonaro said he's, quote, in awe of Biden. And we saw that the, the White House released a report on the meeting between Biden and Bolsonaro and insanely claimed in the article that they are working together in, in vital international efforts to address the climate crisis. And they talk about how the countries must work together to facilitate sustainable development in the larger Amazon basin 
to, dr- to dramatically reduce deforestation, which is insane because Bolsonaro has proudly referred to himself as Captain Chainsaw and Bolsonaro has been encouraging Brazilian corporations and multinational foreign corporations to deforest the Amazon, destroying indigenous land in order to profit. So Joe Biden, the Biden White House, is claiming that Captain Chainsaw is working with the U.S. to protect the Amazon from deforestation, which is cartoonishly absurd. But that's not the main point that I wanted to get at. What's even more significant about this meeting between Biden and Bolsonaro, which went extremely well, is that just one day later, the Brazilian military then threatened the election in Brazil. And this is something that has happened repeatedly now. We've seen military forces in Latin America in both Brazil and Colombia threatening the electoral processes and threatening, of course, the left-wing candidates who are leading in the polls. In the case of Colombia, the head of the military, which is, of course, closely allied with the U.S. government and trained by the U.S. military, the head of the Colombian military threatened the left-wing candidate, Gustavo Petro, who won the first round of the election, and the second round is coming up on June 19th. And now we see that the Brazilian military is also threatening with the election. And for people who want more information, there is a good article in Brazil Wire that is Brasil with an S, like the Spanish and Portuguese spelling. So that is BrasilWire.com. And the article is titled, One Day After Biden Comes Military's Most Explicit Threat to 2022 Election. And I'm just going to summarize a few points here. I'll just read a summary. One day after Jair Bolsonaro's meeting with Joe Biden in Los Angeles, after which the far-right president expressed his satisfaction, the Brazilian armed forces issued their gravest and most explicit threat yet to the 2022 presidential election, and the warning came from the heart of Bolsonaro's military-dominated government, Defense Minister General Paulo Sergio Noguere de Oliveira. And they know that this is the latest in a series of military interventions in Brazil's judiciary since the 2016 coup against Dilma Rousseff, who was the elected president who was overthrown in this kind of judicial coup that's referred to as, you know, lawfare, judicial warfare or legal warfare, lawfare. And the article notes that the international press has not covered this story well, but In the public segment of his meeting with Biden, Bolsonaro used a coded message. He used the word audible, referring to the election. Auditable, auditable, excuse me, not audible, auditable, as in the ability to audit. In In his assurance on the legitimacy of the coming election, this was Bolsonaro's dog whistle reference to his and the military's attacks on Brazil's electronic voting system. So what they're doing is is implying before the election happens that, that the Brazilian election system is not trustworthy. And therefore, when Lula da Silva wins, as all of the polls show he is very likely to do in a landslide, Bolsonaro and the military are going to say, oh, well, it is not legitimate because the system is fraudulent, just like they tried to do in Bolivia in 2019, with the coup against Evo Morales, 
with the help of the U.S. and the Organization of American States. The article in Brazil Wire points out that after this meeting between Bolsonaro and Biden, in which Bolsonaro talked about the importance of auditable elections, then the defense minister, who is his military general, sent a letter to Brazil's electoral court expressing the armed forces dissatisfaction with the court's responses to, quote, technical issues raised by the military in the context of the Electoral Transparency Commission. So once again, this is similar to the kind of Trump tactics of trying to say that the election is not legitimate so Bolsonaro can stay in power and basically have a military dictatorship. And I should say that it's not even just the left-wing forces in Brazil that are warning about a potential uh, coup, but also even the most mainstream establishment newspaper, Folo de Sao Paulo, published an article saying that they had sources, they had evidence that Bolsonaro was planning a military coup. And I should stress that this is not in a leftist newspaper. This is basically like the New York Times. This is the most established mainstream newspaper in Brazil, warning of Bolsonaro's plans for a coup. So the situation is very dangerous in Brazil, and I should really emphasize the role of the Biden administration in coddling Bolsonaro and embracing him. And, of course, Biden and his administration have constantly talked about human rights and democracy while they continue to embrace the most authoritarian and reactionary leaders not just in Latin America, but we also see now another report that Joe Biden is, he wants to restart relations with Saudi Arabia. So once again, you can commit genocide, you can murder anyone you want. And as long as you serve U.S. interests, the U.S. government will rehabilitate you and reestablish relations. Now, of course, one of the main reasons the U.S. is trying to do this is because the U.S. now and the European Union have they have basically blockades on Russia and are boycotting Russian energy, which means that they're trying to find a new source of oil to drop the price of oil in the international market by overproducing. And historically, Saudi Arabia has fulfilled that role for the United States. So the Biden administration is trying to restart relations with Saudi Arabia, basically saying, you know, that whole Khashoggi thing, whatever, we'll forget that. You know, the genocidal war in Yemen in which more than 377,000 Yemenis have died in a conservative estimate, according to the United Nations. Of course, we'll overlook that because the U.S. government has been supporting that war since it began in 2015, on March 26th, when Saudi Arabia began bombing its southern neighbor, Yemen. So more of the same, the Biden administration continuing Trump's policies. But I just wanted to begin today talking about those important developments, the end of the summit in Los Angeles, the great success of the People's Summit, and the very real threats to Bolivia's, excuse me, to Brazil's election coming up in October. As for for Bolivia, I mean, I can talk about that in a bit, actually. Um, Zeninia Añez, the former dictator installed after the U.S.-backed coup and OAS-backed coup in 2019, she has been sentenced to 10 years in prison. And there is an insane propaganda onslaught in the Western media trying to portray her as a political prisoner. This is a murderous dictator who oversaw massacres of dozens of indigenous pro-democracy protesters. 
But the New York Times and other media outlets are portraying her as a political prisoner and portraying Bolivia as authoritarian and anti-democratic. So it really shows the insane propaganda that we're being subjected to right now. But I that's that's a long enough introduction. I can talk more about that in a bit if people are interested. But I'm now going to jump to questions. So anyone who's listening, please feel free to join the queue. And I'm going to start with Mike. Here is Mike R. Go ahead. Hey, Ben. How's it going? Good. How, how about you? I'm doing well. Uh, my question today has to do with uh, Nicaragua, how it's perceived specifically here in the U.S., like in progressive or leftist, you know, circles or forces. Um, for some reason, I feel that Nicaragua is treated or viewed like less favorably than some of the other uh you know, leftist or socialist governments in Latin America. So I'm curious if you agree with that and maybe could, you know, provide reasons why that could be the case before, you know, you do that. I I do want to give one example, which has to do with the summit you were just talking about. I was actually fortunate enough. I live here in LA, so I was fortunate enough to attend the summit, the, the people's summit. And overall, I thought it was great. It was really productive. I went to a bunch of the panels. I learned a lot from the different workshops and speakers. Um, I definitely recommend everyone go check out the online coverage if, you know, if they weren't able to attend in person. Um, and it was obviously a lot of work to put on. So I was really thankful for the organizers. There's a, a bunch of different, you know, local groups here in LA who, who put it on, um, but also other uh, organizations, national organizations. So um, overall, I thought it was great. Now, with that being said, I couldn't help but notice, you know, what appeared to me at least to be a lack of representation or even focus on Nicaragua. So as you covered, and as most people know, one of the reasons they called the summit was due to the fact that Cuba and Venezuela and Nicaragua, they were excluded from being invited or they were not invited to the you know, so-called summit for the Americas or summit of the Americas. So at the People's Summit, what was great is they had a, a panel focused on Cuba, um, yeah, specifically the blockade. And, and there's also a panel focused on uh, Venezuela. I think the theme there was uh, focused on feminism in, in Venezuela, which was really interesting. But there wasn't a panel on Nicaragua. There was a panel that had uh, food sovereignty as the focus. And, you know, as you've covered, Nicaragua is, you know, one of the leaders in food sovereignty. They probably have a lot to teach. I was uh, looking forward to maybe hearing from some of the the work in Nicaragua around food sovereignty. But there wasn't anyone there from or representing uh, Nicaragua at the panel. And as you mentioned just now, we were lucky enough to hear like the video recordings to close out the summit from uh, Diaz-Canal and Maduro uh, and even, uh, you know, Evo Morales. But uh, again, here, Nicaragua was missing. So, you know, I know uh, Daniel Ortega, perhaps he was busy. He maybe didn't have time to record a video or there could be other reasons I'm not privy to. But, you know, as I came away from the summit yesterday, I just couldn't help but think that Nicaragua was somehow, you know, underrepresented, if you will. Um, And I don't know why. So, yeah, I thought you could maybe share your thoughts if you agree with, 
my sentiment and maybe there are some reasons I don't know that could explain that. Yeah, well, I agree with you. I, I wasn't physically there. I mean, I'm here in Nicaragua and right. I did keep track closely online, but I, that's something that I was very, very uh, um, cognizant of. And I do think that it's unfortunate, but I don't think that it's in necessarily intentional. I think it's there's a few reasons for that that I'll explain. One, Nicaragua is a much smaller country, especially compared to Venezuela, which has around 30 million people. Nicaragua has six and a half million. It's half the size even of Cuba. But I also think that it's more than that. There simply is not a lot of information available about Nicaragua. And there's much more information about Venezuela and Cuba. And unfortunately, there is not a lot of solidarity with Nicaragua. In the U.S., for a variety of reasons. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just going to uh, mute your mic because there's just some noise. Oh, sorry, I have a fan running. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of solidarity with Cuba, which is good. I mean, that's a great thing. Partially because the U.S. blockade in Cuba goes back over 60 years. This has been a country that's been under attack since the victory of the revolution in 1959. There was a lot of solidarity with Nicaragua in the 1980s after the victory of the Sandinista Revolution in 1979. But this is another reason why I think there's not a lot of solidarity with Nicaragua and there's not a lot of information. A lot of the people who were in solidarity with Nicaragua in the 1980s later turned to the right and have come out against the Sandinistas since then. And there's a variety of reasons for that that I've talked about. But a lot of people who came down in the 1980s were you know, educated, I'm talking about people, of course, from North America and Western Europe who came to Nicaragua, because there were people around the world who came in solidarity, and that situation is very different. And I should especially point out the noble role of Palestinian solidarity. The Sandinistas trained in Palestine in the 1970s, and, and vice versa, Palestinians trained in Nicaragua after the victory of the revolution. So the international solidarity, it was very different. Well, that is from the global south. But in terms of the the so the people who are kind of sometimes disparagingly referred to as sandalistas, that is the you know North Americans and Western Europeans who came to Nicaragua in the eighties in solidarity, they many of them were from more kind of middle class backgrounds and and highly educated and spoke English and often had very bad Spanish speaking skills. And they became a lot of friends. They became friends with a lot of, of of the elite forces in Nicaraguan society who were sympathetic to the Sandinistas in the 1980s because the Somoza regime was so universally despised, even by large parts of the capitalist class in Nicaragua. So a lot of the Sandalistas, those are the you know North American solidarity activists, became friends and in some cases, you know, partners and husbands and wives of the Nicaraguan elites who were in the Sandinista government in the 80s. And then when they lost power in 1990, they became NGO people and academics and became increasingly over time neoliberals. They were they were pushed into the they were uh, they fell into the orbit of the Democratic Party's, you know, infinite gravity, the black hole, the Democratic Party, Democratic uh, party, and then they got fellowships at elite universities. And by the time, while in the 1990s and early 2000s, well, the Sandinistas were 
organizing in very poor communities and working class barrios in the countryside in very difficult conditions with people who don't speak 10 words of English, these, these people were moving to the right and becoming friends with the MRS, which I've talked about in a past episode here, the Movement for the Renovation of Sandinismo, who represented the kind of elite petty bourgeois elements in Sandinismo, who had a right-wing split out of the Sandinista front in 1994, 1995. So for a variety of those reasons, the solidarity networks that existed basically all became opposition supporters, the vast majority. There are some noble exceptions. I know some people here some old, some you know folks who are getting a little older now who came down in the 70s and 80s and many of them have come back hundreds of times or have lived here i know some people who came down from the us and canada and western europe in the 1980s and have lived here ever since and they're still in solidarity with the revolution but there are very few of them so i think that's one of the main reasons that the solidarity networks with nicaragua in the us are tiny and although of course the People Summit, of course, it wasn't just organized by people in the U.S. There was a lot of participation of people in Latin America and the Caribbean. Of course, the main organizers were in the U.S. And let's be real, in the U.S., there's very little solidarity with Nicaragua. And I think that also explains why not only was there very little representation, but that's also why they didn't even get a speech from President Ortega, which for me was very disappointing. I guarantee you that he would have done it. But they probably don't even have the networks because they because the solidarity movement in the U.S. with Nicaragua is tiny. I mean, I I know most of the people involved in it and it is growing. And I think it's what's good is also that it's been growing since the coup in 2018, the failed coup attempt. A lot of people realized, wait, you know, Nicaragua is still holding on. The Sandinistas are in power. So I think it's 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 largely because of that that complex history I just talked about of the solidarity networks that existed just becoming straight up opposition. And during the 2018 coup, there were a lot of Sandalistas. These are the North Americans who came down in the 80s in solidarity. A lot of them supported the coup, which is really incredible to see. So there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of uh, people who just don't know that much about Nicaragua. And I think it re reflects a weakness of the solidarity movement in the U.S. And I really hope that people will start, you know, developing that. I mean, I'm, I'm involved in it to a certain extent. I don't organize solidarity trips, but there are solidarity trips, multiple solidarity trips every year. And I usually, almost always, when there is a solidarity trip, I participate with the group and we have talks together and we do activities and stuff. So it is it's coming back. But I think it reflects that overall weakness of the, the U.S. solidarity movement. And then an, another m minor factor, like I said earlier, is that, you know, Nicaragua is a very small country and there is not there are very few English language speakers. So unlike in Venezuela and Cuba, which are bigger and have more resources and there are more English language speakers, if you come to Nicaragua, there's basically no one who speaks English, even in the Sandinista front. There are very few English speakers, which makes that language barrier. And the people who speak English tend to be the elite, very highly educated neoliberals who have ties to like NGOs and such. So, of course, unless you speak Spanish well, it's really hard to kind of develop those networks with Sandinistas in Nicaragua. So great question. Um, if I'll, 
I, I muted you because of the noise, but if you just wanted to add another thought before I go to the other callers, I'll go ahead and add you again here. Mike. Yeah, th- thank you for that uh, history. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and just to be fair, I guess I should mention this because, again, I overall I thought the summit was I have positive views. Um, I was tabling at the summit for a Cuba solidarity group, and next to us was uh, the, the friends of the ATC. Yeah, they're great. So even though there wasn't a panel or anything at the summit, there was some small representation. So I, I, I guess I should add that. And if you do know of solidarity groups or you said you're, you know, kind of active or whatever, um, I'd love to learn about them. I don't know if they're based in L.A. or if they have a chapter in L.A., but I think that, um, you know, the work I do with Cuba is a, is a lot around the sanctions, ending the blockade. And unfortunately, I think Nicaragua, there's going to be escalating sanctions on Nicaragua here as um, as things progress in the so-called new Cold War. So I'd love to maybe uh, meet them and uh, work with them. So I, I don't know if there's any groups that you know of, but that would be great. Yeah, you mentioned one of the most important friends of the ATC. For people who don't know, the ATC is the Association of Rural Workers in Nicaragua. And the friends of the AC are solidarity activists, foreign solidarity activists who are supporting their work. And a lot of them are involved in sustainable agriculture and food sovereignty. And they also work with something called the CLOC, the C-L-O-C, which is an indigenous-led um, okay, great. rural worker organization, which is international, but it, it also has, they also have um, organizers in the United States and Canada, and they're really good. I would also recommend the Alliance for Global Justice, which is an excellent group uh, led by the recently deceased Chuck Kaufman, rest in peace. He was one of, this is another thing that I was talking about, you know, there's a generational issue. So of the people, you know, who, who were, came down in the 80s and still stayed in support of the Sandinistas, like Chuck Kaufman, a lot of them are getting kind of up there in their age, and he just passed away. And there's another, so he, he passed away, but there's another really good leader who works with the Alliance for Global Justice named Nan McCurdy. That's N-A-N, Nan McCurdy. And if you talk to her, she is an awesome solidarity activist from the U.S., but she has lived in Nicaragua for many decades and she organizes solidarity trips. So definitely for anyone interested in learning more, but also anyone who wants to participate in a solidarity trip going down to Nicaragua, contact the Alliance for Global Justice. And then I would also recommend a really good uh, website, which is run by a a, um, British solidarity activist who has lived here for many decades, um, Tortilla con Sal, which means tortilla with salt. Uh, That is Tortilla con, C-O-N, Sal, S-A-L. And that's a really good website run by a solidarity activist who lives here who also helps organize solidarity trips. So if anyone, I mean, if anyone wants to get involved with Nicaragua Solidarity and especially to go on a solidarity trip, you can also just DM me on Twitter or email me. Um, and you can find, just find my email on my website. There's a contact form and I can, I'd be happy to provide contact information and websites and stuff. But the main groups of solidarity are uh, friends of the ATC, Via Campesina, Via Campesina, which is a related group, um, CLOC, C-L-O-C, 
Alliance for Global Justice and Code Pink as well. Of course, Code Pink always deserves an honorable mention for its solidarity work. Okay. Thank you very much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks. Great question. And yeah, I, I have to say, I mean, I love all the people who organized the People Summit. I think they did an amazing job. It was very impressive. But unfortunately, yeah, there, there wasn't a lot of Nicaraguan representation. And that's something that I'm sure they were going to work on improving. So next, uh, here's Hussein. In the queue, go ahead. Hey, Ben, how you doing? I'm great. How about you? Good, good. Thanks. Um, uh, last week, we sp- or a few days ago, we spoke a little bit about uh, Al Jazeera and Qatar, and Saleh brought it up. So I just wanted to go back uh, to talk a little bit about Al Jazeera, Qatar, like the Middle East, if you don't mind, just for a couple minutes. Yeah, please do. I'm always down for condemning uh, the, the reactionary <laughs> Gulf monarchies. Yeah. So Qatar, that who runs and owns um, like Al Jazeera, is a country with... 2.8 million population, but only 800,000 are citizens, and the rest of the country are um, immigrants, and they are never like allowed to get citizenship, uh, no matter what the circumstances are. And they run Al Jazeera. The the government. It's not really a country. Like it's like a rich family organization. Uh, who benefit themselves like from all the oil and drilling and the rest of the, they treat the rest of the country like um, slaves, almost. Um, The Middle East, uh, to me, the way I see it, I see two camps. Uh, On one side, you have real, true resistance to, you know, the imperialism and uh, you know, colonization. Uh, and on the other side, you have like Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Emirates, who want to, to normalize with Israel and don't really want the Palestinians to actually get, you know, what what is just for them to get back like their homes, to get back, to go back to like pre-67 or pre-48. Or uh, so... And, and then the axis of resistance, the true axis of resistance, who really do believe that Palestinians have the right to to get back what's theirs, uh, it's not a religion thing. Like a lot of times, it's painted that we've, you know, we've saw that they want to tell us that the conflicts in the Middle East are like Sunnis, Shias, or Muslims, Christians, and it's not like that. And I'll give an example about like this axis of resistance, who includes? So it includes the Syrian government, which is Sunni or Shia, some close to Shia, but not really. It includes uh, Iran, who is 100% uh, Shia. It includes, uh, of course, Hezbollah, who is Shia. But this resistance, Hezbollah, when it backed up, Syria against ISIS, against Al-Qaeda, against the so-called moderate rebels. It also protected Christian neighborhood. It protected uh, churches. So Hezbollah is not, it's, it's never been a, a conflict between religions. It's more of uh, anti-imperialism. And then um, 
I lost my thought, but uh, yeah. So, and then right now, Iran signed like a 20 year deal with Venezuela and Iran is Shia. And so it, it, they make a, they made a, signed a really good deal with, with, they have very good relationship with Venezuela and they, uh, they have in common the, the idea of anti-imperialism. Um, I really don't have any more questions and I lost my train of thought where I was going with that, but I know that you could add a little bit on top of that. So I'll just mute myself and let you like pick up from there and tell me your ideas. Yeah. Well, thank you, Hussein. I, I agree with your analysis completely. You're absolutely right that the Gulf monarchies have always been kind of puppets of Western imperialism. In fact, Ghassan Kanafani, who was the Palestinian intellectual and revolutionary of the PFLP, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, he famously referred to the main enemies of the Palestinian struggle as twofold, the Zionist apartheid regime, the colonialist regime, and also the reactionary Gulf monarchies. And then, of course, he said that that's part of a larger struggle against world imperialism led by the United States. And But he stressed that the enemies of the Palestinian people were not only the Zionist regime, but the reactionary Gulf monarchies. And that's so clear, uh, especially in, in the novella that he wrote, Men in the Sun, which is this anecdote, this, uh, rather, not this anecdote, this rather, uh, metaphor for the, this allegorical metaphor story for the betrayal of the Palestinian people by the Gulf monarchies and by other countries in West Asia. I mean, he made it clear of their role in collaborating with the Zionist regime. And that's, not new. I mean, of course, the UAE and Bahrain, they did normalize relations with apartheid Israel under Trump, but that was an unofficial policy going back many decades. And Saudi Arabia has not officially on paper normalized with apartheid Israel, but everyone knows that they secretly work together. Saudi Arabia buys weapons and military technology and spy technology from apartheid Israel. And I agree with your analysis of the resistance and it's not religious, although there are religious elements in the sense that Western imperialism going back to the British empire, following by the U S empire has exploited Wahhabism and Salafi forms of extremist Islam in order to, to weaponize that identity against minorities, especially against Shia and Alawites, as we saw in Syria with this propaganda narrative claiming that the Syrian government is supposedly a sectarian Alawite government, although, as you pointed out, the majority of the people in the Syrian army and the Syrian military, uh, the Syrian government as a whole, are Sunnis, not Alawites. Alawites only represent around 10 or 15% of the total population. And you also mentioned the role of sectarianism against Iran, which does have a mostly, not, not, not 100%, but mostly Shia population. There are some Sunnis in the Southwest, but mostly Shia population. And the portrayal of Iran as sectarian is also not true because Iran has a significant Jewish population, which is almost never talked about. It has the largest Jewish population in West Asia outside of apartheid Israel, and their rights are respected by the Iranian government. So the idea that Iran is just blatantly anti-Semitic and wants to kill all Jews is not true. There are Iranian Jews. And furthermore, you mentioned a really important detail, and that is the Lebanese resistance Hezbollah 
supporting the Christian communities in their fight against ISIS and Jabhat al-Nusra, Syrian al-Qaeda, when the war in Syria spilled over into Lebanon and ISIS was taking over villages on the Syrian-Lebanese border, Hezbollah took up arms because the Lebanese military was so weak that it needed the support of Hezbollah in order to defeat ISIS and al-Qaeda, backed by the West and Israel and Saudi Arabia and Qatar and Turkey. And in addition, we saw there's even an article, an incredible article in the, in Business Insider or International Business Times, rather, about a Christian militia that was created in Lebanon of average Christian people taking up arms to defend their community. And they fought in alliance with Hezbollah. And ironically, the leader of this Christian Lebanese militia, his his last name, his surname was Nasrallah, but a different Nasrallah. And he, not, not Syed Hassan Nasrallah, who's the leader of Hezbollah. And he said in this interview, he said that, that Hezbollah did more than any other force to defend their Christian community against ISIS, more than the Lebanese state itself. So I agree with your analysis that it's not a religious struggle. It's a struggle against imperialism. And imperialism has always tried to divide local populations in order to conquer. It's divide and conquer. The British Empire did this in the British Mandate of Palestine, which was the colonized part of Palestine before the creation of Israel. And the French did this in Lebanon, creating the confessionalist sectarian system. And the U.S. continues to do it today. This is what imperialists do. And that's why the resistance axis, you know, al-Maqawama, they emphasize the importance of struggle against sectarianism. And the real sectarians are not the resistance forces. They are the Western-backed imperialist forces and the reactionary Gulf monarchies, which, as you said, are basically slave states. And you mentioned that only a tiny percentage of the population in Qatar has citizenship. An even smaller percentage of population in Saudi Arabia and the UAE have citizenship. And we should also point out that Qatar this year is hosting the World Cup and thousands of migrant workers have died building the stadium for the World Cup. These migrant workers are basically held in slave-like conditions when they, when they arrive in Qatar or in Saudi Arabia or the UAE, in many cases, their passports are taken from them, which basically means that they're held captive and they can't leave. They're basically slaves. They're forced into these rooms where they live with like 12 people in bunk beds in a room and are treated like slaves and can't leave. Many of them are ironically Muslim. Many of them are from Pakistan or India or Bangladesh and they're Muslims, Malaysia as well. And they're treated horribly and thousands have died building the World Cup. But Russia was kicked out of the World Cup because of the war in Ukraine. But Qatar is hosting the World Cup while thousands of slaves die. I mean, it, it really shows the hypocrisy of this imperialist system. So great comments, Hossein. Thank you. I don't know if you wanted to add anything else before I go to the last two callers. No, no, that was very good. Thank you for clearing up and saying everything I wanted to say a lot clearer. Yeah, I never watched like any true resistance be like anti-Jewish or anti-Christianity or anything. It was always that any true resistance is always anti-imperialism and anti-Zionism. Thank you very much for clearing everything up. And uh, yeah, I'll continue to listen. 
Thank you, Hossein. It's always a, it's always a real pleasure. Um, great comments. So unfortunately, I, I'm going to take the last two calls here. Um, but unfortunately, I do have a hard stop in a little over 10 minutes. So if we can keep the questions a little short, I'll keep my answers short. So uh, just two two more here. Here's Henry Trattis. Go ahead. Henry, you're on mute. Hey, Henry, you're you're muted. So, all right, well, Henry, I will take your question. Um, I'm going to jump to Sam now. So I'm not kicking you out. If you want to jump back in, I will take... There we go. You're on mute. I got it. Yeah, sorry. I, this is the first time I used this. No so, problem. Um, very quickly, uh, listen, uh, I think, right, that the United States uh, is being uh, pushed back, right? It's suffering this retrocesso, right, in the multi or the multi-polarist uh, world, right? Uh, but I think that will make it very dangerous for Latin America. So I want to I want to ask you, uh, uh, how do you see the struggle in Latin America? Because they 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 are going to want to to secure their immediate territory, right? So how how long can you see that 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 struggle happening? Since I mean I, I'm I'm Honduran American, right? And Honduras is being practically the Israel of Central America, just like Colombia, right? It's being the Israel of the rest of South America, and. Uh, one one issue that people don't talk about, for example, when Manuel Zelaya was uh, overthrown, is that he tried to remove the the Palmerola. Sotocano. Yeah, Sotocano, Sotocano. Right. So if people put a hashtag Sotocano, they will understand what we're talking about. But so I'm um, that that's so. Can you comment on that? How long can that struggle last? And can you comment briefly also on uh, the the, the uh, Colombia Petro the the outlook for his uh, election? That that'll be it. Yeah, thank you, uh, Henry. Great, great. Mucho. Siempre es un gusto hablar con compañeros de Latinoamérica. Es, pero bueno, aquí en inglés. Eh, so, thank you. Um, great question. I, I agree with you very much that when an empire is in crisis, it's when it's really going to commit its worst crimes. We see that historically the German Empire led to the Third Reich, Nazism, The Ottoman Empire had the genocide against Armenians and Assyrians and Greeks. Uh, the Roman Empire, when, when, when empires are in decline and collapsing, they go crazy often. The British Empire with the borderline, with the straight up genocide in the Indian subcontinent. The French in Algeria, massive massacres. So I agree. It's, it's a very real danger. And, We've seen increasingly in the past few years, more and more U.S. politicians invoke the Monroe Doctrine. For instance, recently when the president in February, Alberto Fernandez of Argentina, when he visited China and Russia and joined the Belt Road Initiative and signed economic agreements, the Trump-allied Republican congressman, Matt Gates, also a uh, an alleged pedophile, he from Florida, northern Florida, though, not, not, not like southern Florida, where all the, uh, the escualidos are. He invoked the Monroe Doctrine on the floor of the House of Representatives and said, Argentina is now a threat in our hemisphere because it violates the Monroe Doctrine. It's working with China. And, of course, we saw Donald Trump in his administration, Mike Pompeo, Rex Tillerson, and um, John Bolton, all of them invoked the Monroe Doctrine. So this colonialist 
doctrine is becoming more and more spoken about. And now we see Joe Biden gave a speech a few months ago in which he referred to Latin America. He said, people say it's the backyard. It's not, it's not our backyard. It's our front yard, as if that's somehow better. So I agree that while we see the rise of China and Russia, and while the U.S. has been defeated and being pushed out of West Asia, as we see in its defeat in the war in Syria, as we see in the Iraqi parliament's unanimous vote to expel the U.S. troops, as we see in the U.S. defeat in Afghanistan, the U.S. is going to try to reimpose more control over Latin America. And that's why it's very important to have strong independent movements. That's why it's important to develop economic sovereignty. And that's why Lula da Silva in Brazil is talking about creating a new currency. That's why it's important to strengthen regional integration with groups like the CELAC and like the, the ALBA, the Bolivarian Alliance and UNASUR. So those institutions will help other countries in Latin America defend themselves if there is another coup, like the coup in, in Honduras in 2009 against Celaya that you mentioned, or the coup in Bolivia against Evo Morales in 2019. The CELAC has played a role in, especially since the coup in 2019 in Bolivia, has played a, a role in opposing the OAS. So I do think that countries are moving in the right direction to defend their sovereignty, but I agree that the threats are going to grow. And and briefly, as for Colombia, I did an episode here talking much more about Colombia. And in fact, I spoke with a, a Colombian who were, were previously worked with the Colombian um, security services, and ex- he blew the whistle exposing drug trafficking and corruption in the Colombian government. So if you want to get more information, you can check out that, that episode here at Colin. But briefly, I'll say... Looking at the polls, I'm, I'm not very confident that Gustavo Petro will win. The polls do show that the far-right candidate, Rolo Fernandez, is probably going to win the election. And I expect him to be Uribismo 2.0. He's basically just going to be a new version of Uribismo. He has criticized Uribe, but, I mean, he gave us he gave an interview three years ago in which he said, he praised so-called Dr. Uribe, praising Dr. Uribe. And then he said, I am, um, I am in debt to Uribe. He helped me. And he even said, I think that he loves me. Me quiere, he said. So I don't expect the situation to get that much better. Now, hopefully I'm surprised. And hopefully Petro does win the election. But the polling really shows him behind it. I think the reason is that the right-wing vote was divided in the first round. And Petro, he did get over 40% of the vote in the first round, which is impressive. But the other two candidates, uh, Fico Gutierrez and Rodolfo Fernandez, each of them got over 20%. And if you combine them together, they had over 50% of the vote. So now that the right-wing vote is not divided, I think it's very likely that that Hernandez will win, unfortunately. I, I wish I could have better... Uh, more hopeful news for you. But that's even in addition to the fact that obviously the electoral process in Colombia is notoriously corrupt. And the last election was stolen with drug money, uh, stolen from uh, Petro by Luque. So good questions, Henry. I don't know if you want to add anything else, but I'm going to wrap up soon here. I'll go to Sam. Uh, Henry, I don't know if you want to add anything else. 
Oh no, that, that's that, that's that's pretty good. I mean, uh, it's, it's sad, right? Because also uh, Colombia's got this needle, right, uh, aspect to it. But um, uh, yeah. Um, I mean, hopefully, I don't know if, with the movement that they have last year, right? Maybe in, there's a, a small window. But I agree with you. Uh, this, this is actually if Honduras is a stronghold that kind of is kind of loose right now with the return of of, of uh, um, Samara uh, Castro. Similar cast translate. Uh, Colombia is actually one that the United States will not really, really let go, right? But no, that's, that's thorough. Uh, thanks for the answers. And, um, great job. Y, bueno, gracias a, gracias a usted. Eh, mucho gusto. Y bueno, estamos en contacto. Uh, so I'm going to go to Sam now, really briefly. And I do have only a few minutes. I'm sorry, Sam, for this is Sam Cossum. Go ahead. Oh, it's all good, Ben. Uh, verse, as always, I uh, love listening to the Collins. It makes my week. Uh, I just want to say, though, that wasn't uh, the Monroe Doctrine wasn't even uh, just Republican exclusively. I mean, you even had Bill Maher. What was it about when Trump was in office? Oh, yeah. Talking about, well, we have the Monroe Doctrine. I was like, and that's our, our liberal guy, right? And I just must have uh, missed the memo on that one. That's a good but, point. I, I forgot. That was at the beginning of the Venezuela coup attempt, and he was supporting Guaido. And talking about the Monroe Doctrine. Incredible. Look, I'm, I'm Syrian-American, uh, and even I was like, I was talking to a buddy of mine who is in Venezuela. I was like, who is Guaido? He's like, honest to God, dude, no one had heard of him until he got <laughs> TV declaring himself president. I was like, seriously, like, he, he's like, imagine the most obscure congressman you have. And I'm like, all right. He's like, now imagine this guy was on TV talking about I'm the president now. We're like, I'm like, yeah, good point. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I asked him the other day, and I said, how are you feeling now that the U.S. is... Uh, is suddenly calling uh, Maduro the president. He's like, I. He's like, honestly, like we haven't stopped laughing. Every every <laughs> second we can find any clip of it, it just cracks us up. From, you know, who who makes me laugh? I think it was. And for, uh, forgive me if I if I mix it up. I think it was James Acosta, or was it the guy who talked to? It, there was a reporter who had interviewed Ma, uh, Maduro and said, "Oh, you're not the president. So what should I call you?" Oh, that was um, um from Univision. Uh, I'll think of his name in a second. Uh, Jorge, uh, Jorge, uh, uh, I'll, uh, go ahead, keep going. Okay, so it wasn't Acosta, but um, no, Acosta thing was was questioned on on Julian Assange. I think that's what I was thinking of. But uh, yeah, he had said to him, I was like, okay, so I would pay any amount of money Sorry, for this. Sorry, Jorge day. Ramos. Ramos, okay, that's Ramos. it. Ramos, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like, so uh, anyone ask Ramos? Like, hey, again, who's the president of uh, Venezuela? Just real quick. I just want to make sure we get that on record. Um, I gotta say though, real quick. Uh, I, first, until I see the U.S. troops actually withdrawing out of the Middle East, I'll believe that we we push them out. I mean, they're still there and they're still occupying it. And the U.S. embassy in Iraq is is gigantic. My, my my mother right now works in Iraq, over in Iraq, and she even's like it's huge. Like people just hate this giant like symbol to imperialism that's there. Um, uh, to your point about, uh, I gotta say though, it it really scares me when I, I give credit to to the leader of Mexico, but I mean at the same time I'm thinking to myself, dude, you you understand how coups work, right? We're like yeah. the like the masters of coups in South America since like the 1940s and up and i was like you know play play your card just say you're not going to go but don't give a speech about it i'm like because everyone i remember everyone i'm talking to is like when we were we heard him talking about like you know uh, essentially pointing out biden's hypocrisy i was like um so i'd say about he's got another month before we have to spread democracy on the other side of the border 
But I guess it's just like it's with the U.S. running around just trying to get oil. It really doesn't have time for that kind of stuff. But uh, anyway, I just want to see if you got a laugh of it and that. And what is it? The, the woman who had said we don't think it's appropriate to say, uh, to have um, dictators at the meeting. And I was just thinking to myself, did, was there even one reporter who raised their hand and said, oh, OK, cool. So where is the president going? Saudi Arabia? Is that, is that correct? Anyway, I just want to, uh, that was all I wanted to say. And love your work, Ben, and can't wait for the next call. Thanks, Sam. No, I appreciate it. Great comments. And I wish I had a little longer to next time. Um, I'm going to definitely stay a bit longer. But yeah, I also agree with the comment you made about the U.S. being forced out of, you know, the Middle East or West Asia. I, I agree it's not going to leave voluntarily. But, you know, after Trump killed Qasem Soleimani and Abu Mahdi al-Mahandis in Iraq, the, we saw that Iran said that it was going to that it was the end of U.S. hegemony in West Asia. And we also saw that Syed Hassan Nasrallah, he gave this famous speech and on TV. He did like this hand gesture, which shows like a coffin. And he's like, all the U.S. soldiers in the region are going back in a coffin. Pretty powerful speech. And yeah, they, they've made it clear that in the next few years that they're going to push the U.S. out and we'll see how it works. But there have been attacks on the U.S. forces that are illegally occupying Iraq after the parliament voted unanimously to expel them. And then, of course, the as we've talked about before, the U.S. still has hundreds of troops occupying Syria, where its oil and wheat are. But I think that although Washington is not going to willingly, voluntarily leave, I think they're going to be forced to leave, just as Hezbollah forced the U.S. military to leave with the famous barracks bombing. And I know there are people who claim that it, it might not have been Hezbollah, but I mean, it's likely that it probably was Hezbollah, but you know, the famous in the 1980s under Reagan, when they bombed the US military barracks and forced them out of Lebanon, I think that, you know, there's going to be something very similar. And at some point in the next few years, maybe the next decade, US troops are gonna be forced to leave. So great, great comments. Um, Definitely from everyone, it was a good discussion. I wish I had longer, but I do have a hard stop because I have another interview right now. But um, I want to thank everyone who joined. As always, this episode will be available after on Spotify and iTunes. And I will be back. I do two of these a week. So I will be back next week with two more. So thanks to everyone for listening and I'll see you next time.